kid, I kind of never thought that I would be, uh, namely the boring variety of adult. Um, so my dad would listen to talk radio, and it's like, Dad, it's so boring. Why do you do this? This is the worst thing in the world. And like now, that's what I do. I, I drive around. I listen to talk radio, political commentaries, and I watch a lot of documentaries, and I read a lot of nonfiction books. And I like, I've gotten to a point in my life where I have a hard time watching a movie if it's not based on reality. I don't know why. I, I'll, I'll try, and I'll like, I want to enjoy Spider-Man, and I sit down, and it's like, ah, that's not real. That's a guy like dressed like a spider. Well, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand the appeal. And so I just, I gravitate towards things that are movies and books and things that are based on real life. Um, and so, and it almost doesn't matter what it's about. If it's based on a true story, like I'm going to watch it or I'm going to try and, I don't know, I just love learning things. And so that happened to me again this week. Um, I, there was a mini series that came out about Bernie Madoff and I kind of you know, there's been books and podcasts and movies made about him. I'm very familiar with the story because I watched all of that stuff. I don't even care about Bernie Madoff. I don't care about the stock exchange. I don't care about anything that his life represented. But it's just fascinating to me. Like, this is a real guy. I sort of knew his name. Like, I didn't even know who he was until I, you know, heard the story. And so um, I'm just a sucker for it. And so Netflix came out with this thing, and I watched it. And as I'm watching it, I realized, like, He's done something that thousands upon thousands of people have done, right? He's, he just, he made a Ponzi scheme. Why on earth is everybody, like, why are they still, 15 years later, still retelling his story? Why are people still writing books about him? Why are there still being podcasts being made? I mean, there was a movie made about him, and Robert De Niro played him. None of us in this room have a life interesting enough that if they made a movie about our life, Robert De Niro would sign up to play us, right? I couldn't even play myself. It would be so boring. And so, like, there's something going on here that the fact that they're retelling this guy's story over and over and over again. And it dawned on me that the reason that everybody's so fascinated with him is that he, for decades, had a name that commanded respect. Before people knew that he was lying and cheating and doing all the things he was doing, he, I mean, people would beg Bernie Madoff to, in, to, to invest their money. And he would sometimes, I mean, a lot of times would tell people, no, like, I don't have time for you. He was that important. He was seen as sort of the king of Wall Street. He had a reputation for like 30 years of being the guy on the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, the, probably the most savvy business investor I mean, we know now it's because he was lying. He wasn't really doing it. But at the time, everybody, his name carried weight, and it was a reputation. And the reason that we keep telling his story and the reason that people care about his story is that he had a good name, right? He put himself out there as a respectable, honest businessman. And so when the world found out that he was lying and stealing and cheating, it is a story that will be continued to be retold and retold. Because he put out a good name, and that name was tarnished. Because your name means something. That is the only reason that anybody cares about his story, is because his name. You think about our last election cycle. Why, did, why should anybody care about a laptop from a kid, right? Who, if, if, if Hunter's last name had been Jones, he would have just been another... 50-year-old who never grew up, who was, you know, doing bad things, and they, nobody would have cared. We would have never known that any of those things happened. But because of his last name alone, 
everybody cared about that story. That's the only reason. Our name means something. And that's what Solomon is going to, he, he's going to tell us in this very first verse, he's going to explain to us, look, your name has weight. And it has authority, and you can, your name can be something that is good, or it can be something that is bad. And I think we're going to, like I said, we're going to read the first six verses, and I think everything that we're going to read from there on sort of flows out of this idea that we have a name, and we can make it, based off of our actions, we can make it good, or we can make it bad. And so we are going to look, let's read these first um, six verses here together. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this in the end is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith, face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. And this also is vanity. So once again, I think from my first reading of this as I was looking at it this week, I think so much of what he says after is sort of synonymous with what he says in this first verse. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in the first verse and then kind of explore the rest because I think that they're all very deeply connected. And I think that they all flow out of that first verse. So the first thing to say, I think, is that the comparison is completely lost on us. That a good name is better than precious ointment. Has anybody ever uttered those two words like together? Precious ointment. I don't think I've ever said those two. I don't think I've ever described ointment as precious. I don't think I've ever said that word as many times as I've said it in my own head this week. It's a weird word. I don't use it. It's kind of gross sounding like precious ointment. It's like completely foreign to me. That is not a concept that I've ever, ever considered in my entire life. My understanding of ointment is that when I would go to baseball practice with my dad on the way home in the truck, he would whip out the Bengay and it smelled like death and it was gross and I wanted to throw up. Like that's my, that's, that's my association with ointment, something that is gross that old people use because their muscles hurt, right? That's what, I mean, I, I don't necessarily use that, but like I use these things now. Or I'm getting there. I'm getting old. I'm getting sore. But like that's, that's my, that's, that's it, I mean, it's, it's sort of been updated a little bit because my wife and I are both from Texas, like sea level, ground level, hot, humid climate. And then we moved here. I don't think I've ever used as much lotion in my life as I have in the last couple of years, just trying to keep my skin from like cracking and peeling. It's like I'm used to 100 plus degree, 100% humidity my whole life. And so, and, and the ones that we have, the, the ones that smell good don't work, right? And the ones that work smell like death. And that's kind of, so this is like my understanding. So when Solomon says a, a good name is better than precious ointment, I don't even know what precious ointment means. I have no category for this. And so I had to think about it. Right? I had to spend some time considering like what in the world is he even talking about. Um, and so let's turn to John chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. 
This is a very familiar story. Um, this will help shed some light, I think, on sort of the biblical understanding of ointment. Ointment and perfume, these words are kind of interchangeable in the scriptures. And so we're going to see this very familiar story here in John 12. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself um, to what was put in it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Right? Familiar story. I'm sure you're familiar to some degree. 300 denarii. Denarii is like a, um, that's how much a man would make during, you know, one day's work. So if we're being really conservative in today's money, we're talking about, what, $30,000. That's what this ointment costs. Now, in my extensive understanding of perfumes and ointments, I promise you I didn't look at Google. There are only five perfumes in the world today that cost more than $30,000. Our society, like we just, we don't get this. And perfume and ointment and this kind of stuff is not something that we care about. Now, why is that? Well, because we don't value it the way that they did, right? Because how many of you have the ability and the, and the freedom to take a shower every day? Pretty much all of us, right? We all have running water. But can you imagine if you had to walk from here to Durango, down a dirt road, no cars, right? It would take you all day. Let's say you have a meeting tomorrow. So you start this afternoon, you're walking, you spend seven, eight, I don't know how long it takes to walk there, however long it would take, right? And you're dirty and you're sweaty and you're covered and dust and dirt and you show up to that meeting and everybody expects you to smell really really terrible right nobody's expecting you to come in smelling nice but what if you did what if you came in clean smelling fresh everybody would be shocked and impressed because this is what they would use this stuff for right they would clean themselves they would be able to this is the only way that they would be able to smell nice in a world where basically everybody or everything sort of smells like a donkey and manure and everybody smells like sweat and is covered in dirt so what solomon is, is pointing out to us is this is a, the luxury of luxuries this is an extremely rare thing to have a precious ointment is not something that you would use on a daily basis, but those who had it were the ultra-rich, the ultra-important, and Solomon is telling us a very important message, that a good name is better than that. In other words, what, I mean, what does it mean to have a good name? That means when your name is mentioned, people are like, oh man, that's the guy. That's the one, that's the, he follows the Lord more than, more than anybody. He follows the Lord closer than anybody else I know. He's the most generous person I've ever met. He's the kindest person. He's the most loving person. What it means to have a good name, and Solomon is telling us, it's better what is, what is on the inside of you and who you are is better than what's on the outside. 
You can make yourself look nice. You can make yourself smell nice. But none of that has any value. What do people say about you when you're not around? When your name is brought up in conversation, how do people react? Solomon says that is far, far better than any other thing you could ever imagine, especially this, especially artificially looking good on the outside. And so I ask you, how do you think people react when your name is mentioned in conversation? Now, I recognize we live in polite society, right? Most people do not tell you to your face if they don't like you, right? They tell other people when you're not there, right? That's how, that's unfortunately how the world is that we live in. Very few people are willing to be open and honest with us. And so if people don't like you, it takes, usually takes a long time before you know that. Most people will just not say anything to you. And so what this means is we don't usually get a fully honest answer from people around us about how they think about them. And this then requires a, a great amount of self-reflection. If you, you, see, you can't, you can't control the perception of what people think about you. All you can do is control the things that you do, right? You can control the way that you act. You can control the way that you speak to people, the way that you interact with those around you and the world around you. And so you have to examine yourself. You have to examine your actions and try your best to anticipate how other people are going to view them. I have a story. Um, one of the, when, we were, when we were here in town and we had the church plant, one of, my, one of our most faithful families, they were there from almost the very beginning. And um, he told me this story and he said, you know, at the, after the first week of coming, we almost didn't ever come back because you were pretty loud and we kind of thought you were angry and, um, and it was, you know, it, it took a little while and they did and they got used to it and they were like, they were a part of our church for like years and years and years. Um, but when he said that to me, I like, I took that to heart. I did, man, like, I, I don't feel angry when I preach, like I feel passionate. And so, but there was, there was a lot of self-reflection that had to go in because even though I was not trying to exude anger, like that's how it was being perceived and trying to understand like, how do I pull that back a little bit? How do I change what I'm doing so that the strangers in my life who might hear me preach would, they, would not think that I'm angry? I don't want to scare people away from the pulpit, right? The, the gospel of Jesus is about love and forgiveness and acceptance, not about anger and beating things and hellfire and brimstone. I mean, that's a part of it, but that's not the core of it. That's not its foundation. And so if you, you know, I, I, for many of you, you know, we're, I, I've met most of you or a lot of you, but for the most part, many of you are strangers to me. And I wouldn't, I, like, I wouldn't put it past you. Maybe the first time I was here, you're like, whoa, that guy's pretty angry. I mean, I've heard, Col I've heard Colby preach plenty of times. So I know like, I'm, not, I'm in good company being a little bit loud and boisterous, right? That's how he likes to do it, and that's great. Um, but that has, been, like, that has been a part of my thought process for many years, making sure that when I stand before a crowd of people who don't know me on a personal level, that I don't want to do that. Because that's all I have, right? I just have people's perception and wanting to put my name out there, wanting to, to present myself as a man who loves Jesus in everything that I do. Not just in the way that I parent my kids, or not just the way that I work in my job, or like the way that I preach, the way that I do every single thing in my life. And that's what we have to do. Because we don't have 
Well, I say that. Probably you all have that one friend, though, at least one, who will tell you kind of how it is, right? But for the most part, most people don't, are, are not usually honest with us. And so we can't control that. All we can control is what we do. And so we have to strive to put out a good name that would glorify God. And then that's where we run up against this wall. And the wall is, is that every single one of us is extremely and deeply sinful. You see, we, for the most part, we can keep that up pretty well. Right? For the most part, we can put ourselves out there as nice and polite and kind people. But eventually, the sort of animal instinct, the beast in us, the sinful nature that is living in us, even as Christians that we are fighting all the time, it comes out. It's a reason why when we, would, when we had elder candidates and we would do the testing, we didn't just ask the man that was being you know, being observed, hey, do you think that you do all of the things that we find in Timothy and Titus? Who do you think we brought in to ask? Their wife. Does your husband administer these things? Does he, on a daily basis, is he doing these things? Where is he failing? Because that's the person, right? Your spouse is the person who is going to know you best. They see the good and the bad. Because the bad is there. We can, we can sort of hide the bad from the world pretty well. Most of the time, with those whom are acquaintances, the people we work with, we can put out a good name and we can put out a good face. But we know that deep inside, we are sinful and we are flawed and we need someone to help us. And we need someone to forgive us. And honestly, I think this is probably one of the most compelling arguments for God for his existence, and for our need for him. Because when we are honest, when we look inside of ourselves and we are truly honest, we see the sin, we see the evil, we see the, the, the wrong thoughts, the bad desires. And then occasionally, we see that come out in other people, and we're like, whoa, I thought that, that guy's usually really calm and really nice. You deprive somebody of sleep or food or you back them into a corner and you will see it come out right because it's in everybody and so when we see it in other people and we see it in ourselves, and then we see it in our spouse and we see it in our kids I mean everybody who has kids just laughs at this notion that children are innocent it's unbelievably not true we were eating lunch yesterday right Caleb, my two-year-old, didn't want his hot dog, and so my, my older son is reaching over to grab it. He has made it clear he doesn't want it, and as soon as Makai is trying to grab it, he's, no, squashing it, no, taking it away. He's just taking it from him just because he didn't want him to have it. He didn't even want it. He just, no, you can't have it. Right? That is just raw sinfulness coming out in a two-year-old. It happens. It's in us, right? It's in every single one of us. And when we see it in other people and we know it's in ourselves, and we say, maybe I can't, I'm not the only one here. I'm not the only one who's struggling with these things. I just saw the same things that I struggle with come out in a guy that I work with who's usually calm and usually nice and usually happy. And the world will just chalk it up be like, oh, it's, it's okay. This is a one-time thing. Just don't worry about it. You know, we, we all, we've, we've all been there. We all understand. And we play it off as if it's okay. That every so often we all, we all blow our top or we lose our cool. And so what we can put out to the world is a good name. But not a perfect one. 
But what God requires of us is a perfect name. Perfect action. Perfect obedience. He doesn't say that you can be obedient 90% of the time and that'll be good enough and that's what's going to get you into heaven. All of those little things, even if it only comes out and you once a day, I mean, if, you, if you're only sitting once a day like, man, you're so far beyond me, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for me, it's what we talked about at the beginning, right, a couple of weeks ago. I need it written on my gate and on my doorpost because in the 10 steps that it takes me to get from my gate to my house, I got to be reminded of God's law. Every, I mean, that's how often I need to be reminded of what God said is good and what is true. And so this is what God requires of us. He requires a perfect name. And so then there lies the problem, right? We know that we don't have it. We know that nobody else has it because we've seen the sin in everybody's life. Even if we only see it very briefly in our acquaintances, we know it's there. What do we do about that? Well, God has made a way for us to inherit a new name, right? He doesn't take our broken name and say, let me see if I can duct tape this back together and fix it for you, right? That's why we read from Genesis. God doesn't look down at Jacob and say, you know what? Let's move a few letters around. Let's take your broken name of Jacob and maybe we'll make it Jacoby and now you'll be, we'll, we'll fix it, right? We'll, we'll do a little polishing. He says, no, I'm going to give you a completely new name. The name you had, the person you were, that's gone, destroyed, You are a completely new human being with a new name. And that's what God is telling us. Yeah, you can put a good name out to the world, but God is saying, I'm going to give you a perfect name. And that only comes through Jesus. You see, Jesus came to earth in order to be that perfect sacrifice. And through his death and resurrection, and if you have faith in that, if you're willing to repent of your sin and believe on the name of Jesus, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that God would do this. But he is willing to apply Jesus' name to you and to me and all of that sinfulness that you know lives inside of you and that I know lives inside of me. God is willing to apply the name of Jesus to us, that when he looks at us, he doesn't see me anymore. He sees Jesus. He gave me a new name and a new identity that can only be found in Christ. It's the only way that salvation comes. So I challenge you this morning, shed any goodness that you think you have and take on the perfection of Christ. Now the second half of that verse He says, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. And that is slightly confusing, right? Um, I mean, is Solomon saying that death is better than life? Is he saying that, it's, that, you're, that the day you die is some kind of a blessing because of all of the, the hardship that you're facing in this life, and so finally that's all gone? I don't think so. Because I don't think that that connects with what the whole Bible says, right? God gave us life in Genesis 1, and he called that good. The punishment for disobedience and for sin was death. So Solomon is not telling us death is better than life. And let me just really quick side note. When you read something like this, and you think, 
I don't get that. I don't understand that. That doesn't seem to connect. That doesn't seem to fit in with how I know the Bible as a whole. Just, you, you just let, let me just encourage you. Put down that initial thought. Oh, God must have got it wrong, I guess. I don't understand it. So God's being confusing. Or I don't understand it. Or it, it, this doesn't, I don't understand how it fits in the Bible. So this one, let's just, let's just push that to the side. Let's maybe not think about that. Let's not try and... Look, anytime you read the Bible and you think, wow, that doesn't seem to fit or I don't understand this, you're the one who is wrong, not God. Amen? So there's an answer, right? There's an, there's an answer into, into how this statement fits in with the rest of the Bible. And the temptation is to be like, well, I, just, I, don't, I don't think I want to try and figure that one out. I'm just going to move on. There's a whole lot. There's a whole lot of it. This is only half a verse. There's a whole lot of other things I could read. Uh, maybe I'll come back to that one day. I challenge you, don't, don't move past things like this, hard sayings that you don't understand. Um, dig into them, right? Don't, th- there's value in reading big chunks of scripture at one time, and there's value in reading a half a verse until you understand it. And, and praying to God until he can reveal to you the truth of what's happening here. So Solomon tells us that the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. I think the connection is between these two verses. A good name is better than a precious ointment. Have you, and and I'm sure you all have, right? You've been to a funeral of somebody who lived faithfully, who trusted Jesus, who walked with him 40, 50 years. What happens when you go to that funeral? What what, What internally is going on? Man, they just listed off all of the ways which this 80-year-old man has been faithful through things, hardships I've never even experienced, and yet he never denied Jesus. He stayed with him. He was faithful. What are people going to say about me when I'm lying in that casket? Are people going to know the goodness of God when they come to my funeral because the Lord enabled me to be faithful for decade after decade after decade? Solomon goes on and he gives synonymous statements, right? It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the hearts of fools is in the house of mirth. Over and over again, he's saying this. He's not saying that death is better than life. He's saying that we learn more when we stand face to face with death. And when we mourn, and when we're in sorrow, then we ever learn at a party full of laughter. You go to a feast, and that's good. And God is not saying don't feast, and don't have fun, and don't laugh. Those are good things, but that's not where you learn life's hard lessons. When do you learn them? When you're broken to the point where all you have left is to turn to God. God, I I can't fix this. I don't know what is going on. I can't do anything about this. You're the only one who can help me. I am in great need, in great pain, and in great sorrow. That's when you learn the hard lessons about life. Think back to the last funeral that you may have attended. How quickly do people want to get up from the chair or the pew or the seat out in the cemetery? Immediately. Go back to small talk. Immediately go back to not dealing with what they just encountered. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is forcing you to look death square in the eye and say, what are you going to do about it? You are going to die. This is a reality that you cannot escape. 
perfect and you cannot control. You have no idea when it's coming. You have no idea how much suffering you're going to have between now and the day of your death. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to wallow in your sorrow or are you going to be a testament to the goodness of God by the way that you live your life? No matter what happens, on the day of your death, are people going to come to your funeral and be like, that man changed my life because of his faithfulness to Jesus? Or are they going to do what we talked about in polite society? He had a cousin who died a few years ago, and he was a fiend. I don't think I ever saw or heard a good thing come from that man. And at his funeral, for 30 minutes, people plowed around trying to find something good to say about him. And the little nuggets of, oh, he was nice this one time. Let's embellish that for 10 minutes because we're not going to stand up here and talk about his drug addict, child abusing, child neglecting, all of the things that he did in his life, going to prison, like all of the horrible things that he did. And we did a disservice to everybody who was there because if that funeral had been a list, this is all of the ways that this man was a horrific, evil person. What do you want people to say at your funeral? Like that would have grabbed the hearts of men and said, I don't, I don't want to end up like him. I don't want my funeral to be a sad and depressing affair. I want my funeral to be joyful about what I have done with the power of the Holy Spirit to, to advance the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Solomon is inviting us into the house of sorrow. He is inviting you to mourn. And what he's really doing is saying, when those, time co when those times come, don't blow past it. I think the psychiatric profession has done some good in this idea of the five stages of grief, trying to help us to understand it. But at the same time, I think they have done our society a lot of harm. Because you're supposed to walk through them one at a time and get beyond it. As if grief is some kind of thing that you are going to heal or medicate out of your life. The quicker you can get over the loss and the mourning and the sorrow, the better you will be. And that is antithetical to the Bible. That is the opposite of what God is telling us here. Embrace these times because this is where you learn. This is where you grow closer to the Lord. This is where you will have the deepest amount of faith. So go to those feasts, right? Go and joyous and laugh and have a party and have fun. But know that for what it is. That's not going to be a time of deep self-reflection. It's just, it's fun and it's good. We don't, we don't like to cut those off early, right? We want the party to last as long as possible and the joy and the laughter and the fun to last as long as we can. But we will step out of a funeral home as quickly as we can because we know we just stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with death and we don't want to deal with it and we don't want to think about it. And God is telling you that's what you need to do. I think it's important to realize too that laughter and feasting, those things only exist and they are only good if you know the opposite side. If you know sorrow, if you know pain and suffering. If you don't know those things, 
You don't understand the joyousness of what it means to be laughing and feasting. A really simple example. When are you most thankful that you don't have a headache? About 10 minutes after it, one goes away, right? You have one, it's pain, you're doing whatever you can, and as soon as it's gone and you feel the relief, man, I am so grateful in that moment that I don't have a headache. This morning, I did not wake up grateful that I didn't have a headache because it's been a while, right? It's a really simple example. But when my head is hurting and pounding and beating and the, and the pain is gone, I'm so thankful. I feel a joy in that moment that I don't feel right now because it's been a week or two or however long it's been, right? So that's, we, if we don't experience those things, we won't understand joy. We won't appreciate feasting and laughter. We take it for granted. I want to say one other thing about this, and that is that fulfillment is better than potential. So Solomon doesn't tell us that the day of your death is better than your life. He just says the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. Because the day of your death, your life has been fulfilled. This is a, this is a theme throughout the entire Bible. There's great joy and potential, but parents, how many times do you look at your kids and you see the potential... But you're also worried about, man, I love my kids. I want what's best for them. And you know that you cannot control that. There's this is a day when they're going to move out of your house, and you will not be able to control what they do or what they say or the decisions that they make. There's potential there, but there's a lot of fear that goes with that. Think about the life of Christ. If in the garden... You see, all, all the way up to that point, he's all, all this potential, right? He's done everything perfectly. He's lived a life of perfection. But he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and all that potential has come to its climax. And he finally says, you know what? These people are not worth it. I am out of here. You're not saved by that potential. You're saved by the fulfillment of what he did. You're saved by the fulfillment of his death and resurrection, that he went all the way to the end, that he saw it all the way through, that he died and that he resurrected and that he came back. I think it's an important thing to draw from that verse as well. And really from all of these verses, right? And so there's one last thing to say, and we'll change gears. This is hard to hear. All, all of it's hard to hear, right? Ecclesiastes is just hard to hear as a whole. And this one is probably, of the passage, one of the hardest things to hear. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. C.S. Lewis said whenever somebody presents him with this sin, instantly, immediately, he says he comes up with a list as long as his arm about why he was justified in doing that or why it's okay that he was doing that because that is our human instinct. When someone comes to us, confronts us about our sin, rebukes us for the wrongdoing that we have done, they see it in our life and they come and they present it. Whether we say it out loud or not, the most humble man in the world almost always will say, how dare you? How dare you point out the speck in my eye when you have the longing, right? We love that verse when it applies to the other person. Solomon is giving us great 
great wisdom here. The rebuke of the wise is one of the most precious things in our lives. It is crucial to our walk with the Lord. It is necessary if we truly want to live a life that is going to bring about this good name, to honor the name of Jesus, we need people in our lives because you and I, we are blind to our sin because we are willing to make excuses where other people won't because they see it for what it is and we don't. We know that we sin, and we're like, yeah, but, you know, but nobody really knows that like I only got three hours of sleep last night and that's why I did that. It doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't give us license. Like, oh, well, of course, if three hours. Like, you, if you had gotten four, you weren't allowed to do it. But because you only got three, you're allowed to blow up at your coworker. You're allowed to yell at your wife. You're allowed to, to, to spank your kids when you shouldn't have. Whatever it is, right? Wherever you're suffering, whatever you're struggling with, other people will see it. And when people rebuke you, the first thing you do is you put that reaction to death. Don't let it live even a second. When you think to yourself, how dare you, then you say, that's not a godly reaction. And you t stop, like put it down, right? Ask the, ask the Lord to kill it because all you're doing is just walking deeper into sin. Don't allow yourself to. Ask the Lord to help you. It's a hard thing to do. It's unpleasant. But here's what's so funny is that that's our reaction even though the basis of Christianity is that we admit that we are sinners. We admit that we are broken and flawed. And we go to Jesus and we ask him to forgive us. And yet when another human comes to us and points those things out, we want to defend ourselves. As if we are somehow righteous when we're not. When someone comes to you rebuking sin, I think... I wish I wish I'd looked this up. Spurgeon has this really great, really great quote, um, and I, it, it goes something along the lines of, uh, "Like, I'm just glad you don't know the. I'm glad you don't see the things that you don't know about." Right? When people would come to him in sin, like he would just he he had this stock answer to try and put that to death. Yes, you're right. The things you're seeing are true, and there's so much more that you're not seeing, and it's worse. And so, thank you, right? Thank you for coming and pointing this out. And that's a hard place to get to. We have to humble ourselves. Your ego can't exist in that world, right? Your pride doesn't exist when you look at somebody and they've, and they've confronted you and rebuked you for sin and say, you're right and I'm wrong. I am. I am all of those things that you just said. Can you please help me? Can you please play, pray with me? I, I need months and, and weeks of support so that I can overcome this. I've been trying for a long time. Thank you for bringing it up. company of wise men, of, of the wise man, right, this is what's going to bring real joy. Solomon says, the rebuke of the wise man is good. The laughter of fools. He says it's just like the thorns under a pot, right? It's just like the kindling. Solomon is always really honest. If you look at Proverbs 1 when he's talking to his, the, his son there, he doesn't say, hey, every, every sin that you ever do, it, from, the, from the moment you try it and the moment you start it, is going to make you feel horrible and it's going to be bad. He says, no, it's going to look really good. 
It's going to look really good when that band of thieves comes and asks you to be a part of their group and go and rob people on the highway. That's going to look real fun. And there's a lot of easy money to be made, and that's going to, that's going to be enticing to you. Solomon is honest with us, right? There is some laughter, but that's how quickly it fades. As quickly as a kindling, right? You start a fire, how quickly does that stuff burn away? If you don't actually already have the big logs there ready, you miss out. It burns up so quickly. There's laughter to be had, but it's vanity. It's trying to grab after the wind. It's trying to collect smoke in a cup and keep it forever. It's not possible. But the rebuke and the company of wise men, that's what's good. And of course, the wisest of all is Christ. He has given us perfect wisdom. That's what the Bible is. And even though, as we've been reading, it's hard, it feels a little bit depressing sometimes, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is the wisdom of God Almighty. And God gives us a wise rebuke over and over again. Maybe, as you've been sitting through listening to these sermons, you're feeling that sting of rebuke from the wisdom of God. That materialism, if you're chasing that, it doesn't work. It's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to make you happy. That's a rebuke from the Lord. But he also gives us encouragement from his wisdom. There is true joy to be found. There is true fulfillment to be found. And it can be found in Jesus and in serving God Almighty. So I encourage you this morning, make much of the name of Jesus in your life. So that on the day of your death, your coffin will preach the gospel. That it will grab the hearts of men. It will shake the lives of those who attend that. That they will learn something because of the life that you live. Because of the name that you put out by the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your wisdom. Even wisdom that's hard to understand. Even sayings from Solomon that that at face value don't seem to make sense. Lord, your wisdom is perfect and it is good and it is true. I think the hardest part for us is applying these things to our lives. Recognizing that what sort of the old adage that we teach our children that what is on the inside matters and what is on the outside We say that sort of flippantly because a lot of the times we don't live like we believe that. So Lord, I ask that you would give us strength. You would give us boldness to go out into this world to live a name that is worthy that you have given to us. Lord, the name of Jesus that you have imbued upon us, this new name of righteousness and holy and forgiven that we would go out and that that would shine forth from us every day that nobody could deny That there's something different about each one of us. All the way until we are buried six feet under, Lord. That our, our funeral will cause people to question their own goodness, their own, their own trying to be good and trying to be righteous. And that they would see that it's just not possible. Lord, we thank you and we love you. We thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.